what does a gospel-centered church look like? Or maybe zoom it down just to think about individuals. What does the Christian life look like? For, for each one of us that's a Christian, um, we want to be asking ourselves those questions. What does it mean to live as a Christian? Um, or the way that you'll hear me phrase kind of reframe this question later on and throughout the sermon is what is gospel living? What does that look like? Yeah, so what is gospel living? And that's a question that I hope and expect that every single person here, whether or not you're a Christian, have at least given that question some thought. Um, And that's a good question. We need to consider that. It's a great question to ask ourselves, and it's an even better question to have an answer for. Um, It's one of the most important questions for us to think about as Christians. Um, Because that ultimately, if you think about it, the answer to that question sets the fundamental trajectory of our lives. If we think that the Christian life is supposed to look a certain way, then that's hopefully the way that we will seek to conform our lives. Um, And if it looks a different way, then we would do something else. We would set ourselves on a different trajectory. And so, again, it is a fundamental question for us to ask. Um, If we want to know whether or not we're living rightly, whether we're walking with Christ, um, if we want to know what that looks like, we have to ask ourselves that question. Those questions, what does a gospel life look like? What does the Christian life look like? Those... um, This is not a question that is easy to answer. And I would say, as Christians, we should recognize that without Scripture, we wouldn't be able to answer that question. Um, The the Christian life or gospel living is counterintuitive. It is not like the wisdom that this world has to offer us. Um, It's not common sense. And so we need Scripture to help us understand what it looks like. Um, And that's where... Um, I want us to focus this morning, and that's what I want us to think about and, and consider. And that's why we're going to be starting a new series right now. Um, this week, I get the privilege of starting us off on a new sermon series. We're going to be looking um, through Paul's letter to Titus over the next eight weeks. Um, and honestly, I'm really excited about this. Titus is one of my favorite um, books in the New Testament. It's one of my favorite books in the Bible. Um, And I would say, one could argue that there's no other book where you get such a succinct yet thorough answer to those questions that I've already been posing this morning. Um, If you want to get a glimpse of what the church and gospel living look like, um, this is a fantastic letter to read and to study. Um, Paul lays it out quickly. It's only three short chapters, um, but he goes into so much detail. He has so much truth for us to consider Um, as we look at it. Um, And so that's what we're going to be doing over the next eight weeks. Um, And just so that you understand what the context of this letter is, because that's helpful to understand, um, this letter was written by Paul to Titus. Um, They were both co-workers in ministry. They did ministry together. Titus was younger um, than Paul. And after doing some ministry in Crete, Um, they were able to see a number of people come to know Christ. They converted to Christianity. They began following Jesus. Um, And as was Paul's common common practice, he left Titus there to establish the church as he moved on to do ministry elsewhere and to continue to spread the gospel. And so this letter 
that he's given us is his letter to Titus in providing instruction on how to establish that church um, on Crete. Um, And within his instructions in the letter, Paul gives pictures of what the church should be doing and what the lives of the members of that church should look like. And that's where we really learn a lot about what is gospel living, what the Christian life looks like. Through his instructions, he provides us glimpses of what gospel living entails. Um, And so that's what we're gonna be looking at over the next eight weeks. That's what we're gonna be considering. That's what we're gonna be learning from. And my hope is that this series will bless this church a lot. Um, There are so many ways that I think this, this short letter can benefit us. As we're looking through it over the next two months, I want us to be doing some personal reflection, being con- be considering how is my individual walk with the Lord going? Like how, how is it strong? How is God's grace evident in my life? But also how are there ways that I can be growing? Um, I want us to do corporate self-reflection as well. As a church as a whole, I want us to be considering how are we as a body collectively walking with Christ well Um, And also, how is there evidence of his grace um, displayed through this church? But also, how can we improve in that? Um, I want us to be discussing those things. But then also, I I pray that we would be encouraged by it, convicted by it, um, that it would motivate us and strengthen our resolve and zeal to fulfill Christ's ministry. Um, And then ultimately, kind of underlying all of those things, I I pray that Titus would be just nourishing for our souls, that it would deepen our roots in God's word. Um, So that's what I'm praying will be true for this series. I'm confident that the Spirit will provide that. And so um, that's what I I hope we all share as a vision for for where we're going through Titus. Um, And I hope that that begins this morning as we look at Paul's introductory greeting Um, We're going to be looking at Titus 1, verses 1 through 4. So you can turn there now. Uh, That's, if you have one of the the black Bibles in the pews, I believe that's on page 998. Um, If you have one of the white ones, I'm actually not sure what page that is, but in the black ones, it should be page 998. Um, But I'll give you guys a moment to turn there, and then I'll read those four verses for us. All right, Uh, let me read God's word uh, in Titus 1, 1 through 4. It says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word, through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. So first, I just want to point out the fact that this introduction is quintessential Paul. Um, Notice, if if you pay attention to the punctuation, This is four verses, but it's all just one sentence. Paul is, in typical Pauline fashion, he likes to start ideas, um, something as simple as a greeting, like we have here, 
And then he just keeps building and building and building upon um, his statements and ideas and the thoughts that he's communicating in it. Um, it's almost like he's getting lost in his excitement for what he has to say. Um, but he isn't lost, though. That's the thing. Th- these aren't just the distracted ramblings of someone who just really likes writing letters and he just wants to write down all, everything that he's thinking. Um, he's not running down a rabbit trail here. These are the intentional thoughts of someone who wants to convey in each sentence that he writes as much joy and beauty and truth as he possibly can. Um, And I want you to keep that mind as you, in your own personal devotion times, as you spend time in the word, Um, and maybe even at times when you're struggling to really glean anything from it, when it's not, when you feel like you're not learning anything, give it more time. Think a little bit longer about it. Read it just a little bit more slowly. Or even just pray through the verses just one more time. Um, There's more there. Um, Even, and and you'll find that if you're patient with it. And I I, I can speak from experience, just even as I was preparing for this sermon. Um, It was easy to look at these and be like, okay, he's he's just kind of setting the stage. He's greeting Titus. Um, At first glance, it could seem like there isn't much there, but there is. There's so much fruit that can be born um, from just slowing down and really studying scripture. And so I would just really encourage you to do that. It was really edifying for my own soul as I was doing that through these four verses this week. Um, because again, this, this greeting in Titus is no exception to that. There's so much that can be learned from it. Um, interestingly enough, even though this is one of Paul's shortest letters, it's actually one of his longest introductions um, the only two letters that he's written that are longer um, in their introductions are Romans, which is not very surprising. Um, and then Galatians is just a little bit longer than this one. Um, but that should give us some insight into how much he's hoping to share with Titus. He wants to give him as much truth, as much guidance as he possibly can, and he doesn't waste a single word doing it. Um, and in that, he is setting the stage for the whole letter by describing his own ministry in these four verses. Um, And as we'll see, Paul's own life and ministry teach us a ton about how our own lives and ministries can and should look. Uh, Because honestly, if you think about it, other than Christ himself, Paul is perhaps the best example we have in scripture to learn from um, on what gospel living means. And so um, that's... That's really what is going on here. In these four verses, and this one long sentence, um, this is what he's showing us. And just to kind of sum it all up, I want us to get this idea that gospel living is the pursuit of ongoing faith in Christ that leads to godliness and eternal life. Um, So for those who are taking notes, just to repeat that, gospel living is the pursuit of ongoing faith in Christ that leads to godliness and eternal life. Um, now, for this sermon, it was, it was kind of hard to come up with a nice, like, maybe alliterative set of points. So it's not going to be structured as nicely as usual. Um, what I'm going to do instead is kind of just make my way through Paul's ideas and thoughts in this passage, and then we'll see how each of them builds on one another. Um, and then 
I will have kind of labels on the screen for you to follow along just so that you can track with me. But we're pretty much just going to be making our way through his thoughts and seeing how they build on each other. So with that said, let's start by looking back again at just the very first bit of verse 1. So in verse 1 he says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. So Paul calls himself a servant and an apostle. Um, In fact, um, uh, even a more accurate way that you could possibly translate that would be to say a slave of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Um, The the Greek word there is literally slave. Um, So he's calling himself a slave of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Um, Now, if you're like me, you might be tempted as you're reading a letter like Titus or just some, some part of scripture, you would read that and just kind of skim over a statement like that and look for something more important. Um, don't do that, though. Um, yes, you probably already understand that fact. You would recognize, oh yeah, Paul sees himself as a servant and as an apostle. That's, that's an obvious truth. Um, but Paul's perspective towards his own life and ministry can teach us a lot about how we should view our own. And there's so much wrapped up even in just those two statements, that he's a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Think about the contrast that he's presenting there with his words. On the one hand, he's a servant or slave, like I said, but on the other hand, he's an apostle. One is a position of subservience, and the other is a position of authority. Um, It might sound like an oxymoron, but it's not. Paul's establishing his posture before God and man. So let's first consider his authority. Paul knew the authority that he had within the church as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Um, if you've read Philemon in verses eight and nine, he says, he, he says this, he's writing to Philemon, and he says, accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. So Paul is writing, if you don't, if you don't remember the context of Philemon, he is writing to Philemon to see if he would release his old slave, Onesimus, um, into the custody, into Paul's custody, since Onesimus ran away. Um, And he has since become a Christian and he's been doing ministry with Paul. Um, And so legally, Philemon has rights over Onesimus, but Paul, being an apostle, saw his, his authority as even surpassing Philemon's legal rights. If he wanted to, he could demand that Philemon release Onesimus, since both of them, both the slave and the master, were Paul's brothers in Christ. Paul had the authority to do that according to the law of God and slavery's inconsistency with it. And so Paul knew that he had the authority to demand that. He didn't do it, but he knew that he could. He makes it evident and clear. So I don't want you to get caught up on why Paul could demand that, but the fact that I want you to acknowledge is that he knew that he could. That's, this is not a level of authority that we see in the church today. Paul's authority as an apostle exceeded that of the elders of like Redeemer or any other church today. Um, and that, the reason for that is that he knew that he was communicating the very word of God to the church. Look with me at verses two and three. It says, So he's just continuing his thoughts and he says, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began 
and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So think about that. Paul himself recognized that the word of God was manifested to the world, and pay attention to this, through what? Through his own preaching, because the truth was entrusted to him by Christ himself. Paul knew that his preaching carried the very weight and authority of God. That does not mean that every single word he or the other apostles ever said was scripture. Clearly, Paul's rebuke of Peter in Acts makes that statement wrong. But what the apostles did make clear in their own writings was that they knew when the Spirit of God was inspiring them, and therefore they knew when their words carried the authority of God. And that should tell us that they had an authority that no normal leader in the world has ever had. Even the leaders of nations don't have such authority as that. The prophets and apostles of God were in a class of their own, set apart, as, Peter, as 1 Peter 1 says, even the angels long to look upon their teachings. But with that said, even with all the authority that he had as an apostle, Paul himself, he saw himself as merely a slave of God. He had so much authority, so much status, and yet, what did he consider himself? What did he list first? He didn't list his apostleship first. He lists, listed that he's a servant of God first. That's what he saw himself first and foremost as. That is what is so profound about him calling himself a servant and an apostle. He did not use his authority for himself and he did not see it as something that he had earned. He did not even see it as something that was inherently his. God had entrusted his will and commands to Paul and he was simply meant to fulfill them. That was all. He was living and acting for God, not himself. He would, he would get no personal glory from it. In all that God had given him, he wasn't seeking to serve himself. He was seeking to serve God and to serve God's people. That was his ultimate aim. That was his, his undivided attention and focus and pursuit. Just think about if you had the kind of authority that Paul had. Think if you were given the, that kind of command over the church, over anything, Imagine how tempting it would be to use such authority for your own ambitions. Imagine how easy it would be to do things to garner your own influence or prestige. Or think about how, you would, how, much you, how often you would expect things of others just to make things more convenient or comfortable for yourself or just to benefit you. It would be so easy to do that. And there are so many leaders in this world who have done that very thing. Like, even, even as I was reflecting on this for myself, as I was considering, like, what it would look like to have that kind of authority that Paul had, that idea terrifies me. Like, authority like that would be, I know that would be too much for me. It would destroy my soul. I would seek after my own glory, my own personal gain, my own prestige, all of those things that I listed before, those would be the things that I would pursue if I knew that I could have them with the authority that I had. It would destroy my soul and it would probably destroy the lives of everyone under me. But that's why we're reading the words of Paul this morning, not the words of Kyle McKay. I didn't write this letter, he did. 
And praise God for that. Paul's ministry is an example of profound humility that we want to learn from as a church and as individuals. If gospel living is the on if gospel living is the ongoing pursuit of faith in Christ that leads to godliness and eternal life, like I said, then this is the posture we want to take in that pursuit. We want our focus to be on the service of God and others, not on personal gain or glory. Paul did not see himself as standing over others. He was not more important or more valuable or better than anyone else. It was not a matter of him comparing himself to others either. He first and foremost saw himself as one on his knees before his God, serving God's will above all else. And that posture came from a deep recognition of his own sinfulness and Christ's mercy. And this has so much application for ourselves in thinking about the demonstration of humility in Paul's life and how that can translate into our own. Think about it. If his desire was to not just make sure that he could exercise his rights, he forsook his rights for the service and love of those around him. Um, We can emulate that. We can imitate his example in that. We can seek to want to serve others rather than to be served by them. We can, seek, we can see service as a joy and not just a begrudging responsibility and task that we have to do. We can see that it's actually something that's life-giving, not only for the person that we are serving, but life-giving for us. Um, and recognizing that we, we want to be all in for God. We want to be totally committed to our, to our lives with him. Half-hearted submission to Christ isn't submission to Christ. Um, And so we want to recognize that for our own lives and walk in light of how Paul's ministry looked. And again, like I said, that posture came from a deep recognition of his own sinfulness and Christ's mercy. And so that's what I want us to consider next. Um, That's, and that's where Paul leads us in his next statement in the first verse. So let's look again with me at verse one. So it says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Paul's service and devotion was for God's elect, or in other words, God's people. Specifically, it was for the sake of their faith and their knowledge of the truth. And this is exactly what I was just talking about. Paul's life was lived in a state of continual recognition of both his own sinfulness but that being paired with Christ's deep love for him, he lived the way that he lived in, he lived the way he did, not only to remember that for himself, but to help others see that too for themselves. And his humility was a product of knowing that he had been given something he didn't deserve in the first place. And that was the grace of Jesus Christ. So for the sake of the faith of God's elect, that's what he was serving. That was his pursuit. And he lived that out, demonstrated that with his own life, and he sought to help others do the same in their own lives. And that was displayed by him calling them to acknowledgement of their sins, but a recognition of what Christ had done for them, what he had done for him and what he had done for everyone else. Paul knew how terrible he was. Jesus himself confronted him about his persecution of the church. Like, 
stop for a second and just consider that. How terrifying would that be if Jesus Christ himself came to you and confronted you about your persecution of him and his church? If he came to you and rebuked you for your sins, that would be terrifying. Paul called himself the foremost, in other words, the chief of all sinners. And he wasn't exaggerating that. He did not shy away from the terrible things he had done to oppose Christ and his church. But by facing those things and plumbing the depths of his own sin, he was able to find equally great heights in the grace of Jesus Christ. And that's part of the beauty and that counterintuitive nature of the gospel that I mentioned before. His humility was modeled after Christ's own Jesus died on the cross for Paul. He sacrificed himself. He, though he was God, though he is God and deserves all glory, all praise, he humbled himself, he faced persecution, he faced just ridicule, he faced torture and torment, he faced all of that for Paul. He died on the cross for Paul and Paul recognized that. And it wasn't just for some of his sins. He did that for all of Paul's sins. And that transformed Paul to the core. The gravity of his sins did not cause him, and here's the thing that's important for us to recognize, the gravity of his sins did not cause him to question Christ's ability to forgive him. I think that's one of the gut reactions a lot of us have when we consider our sins. We want to minimize them. We want to view them as less bad than they are because when we really see them, for how terrible, how disgusting, how loathsome they are, our gut reaction is to think, okay, then if my sin is that bad, Christ couldn't actually have forgiven me for those sins. But that's not what he does. We want to follow him in the way that he thinks about this. The gravity of his sins does not cause him to question whether or not Christ was able to forgive him or did forgive him. Instead, it revealed to him just how deep Jesus' mercy for him goes and went. Paul knew that however big his sins were, they were dwarfed by the size and the power of the cross on which they were nailed. And because of that, he ceased to want to live for himself. He wanted to live for the gracious master who had taken away his sins and guilt. If you want to find joy in Christ, if you want to be humbled before him and to appreciate the gospel more wholeheartedly, it starts by seeing your sin more clearly, not minimizing it, but seeing it more vibrantly in all the terrible colors that it is. Um, Redeemer, that's what the gospel means for us. If we want to be humble servants like Paul, we must first face our sins and not minimize them. We can't will ourselves to be humble. And, and that acknowledging our sin and not minimizing it, that's an aspect of faith. Faith is not just trusting for Jesus for forgiveness. It also involves seeing our sin for what it is, recognizing that we need him because of how terrible our sin is. As long as we minimize and disregard our sins, we will remain proud people and have weak or even no faith at all. 
We will be servants of our own foolish arrogance. And you need to know you are a far worse master than God is. And any idols you have other than yourself are far worse masters than God is. Don't minimize your sins and belittle the sacrifice that Jesus made on your behalf. Observe your sins, see them for what they are, confess them to God and others, and put your hope in the fact that Jesus died for someone as bad as you. Your sins don't surprise him. Don't catch him off guard. They aren't too much for him to handle. Your sins, and th- just like we were singing, our sins are many, but his mercy is more. Trust in that. That's what the message was of Paul's life and ministry. And that's the message he devoted himself to, not only for his own sake, but for the sake of every single person that he ministered to. The gospel spread because this is the message that he shared. This is the gospel. He literally died so that others could know these things. And so something, just a bit of application, some practical things for you to consider in light of this. How can we tell when we are minimizing our sins? Maybe you you hear these things and you recognize you don't want to do that. You don't want to minimize your sins, but maybe you don't realize that you're even doing it. So how can we recognize that we are doing that? First, just accept the fact that you're doing it, whether you recognize it or not. We always are going to be doing that. Sin impacts us in so many ways that that is our natural reaction to our own sin. You're doing it everywhere, so acknowledge that. Don't just assume that you're not doing it. Second, look for ways that you shift blame or make excuses for your actions. Um, or, Or another thing to ask yourself is, what in my life would I defend if someone else challenged it? So if there was something, if there's something that you're doing, if there's a desire that you have, if there's a pursuit that you have, if you would defend it tooth and nail, if someone challenged it, if someone asked you, like, hey, Kyle, why, why, do you, why are you doing that? Do you really think that's the best thing to do? Or is that the best way to think about this? If you want to defend that automatically without giving it much thought, that, that might be an indication that that's something that you are minimizing and that you're, you're enabling rather than really confessing and repenting of. So be willing to ask yourself those questions. Consider them. And when you do see that sin, repent of it and trust that Christ has forgiven you for those things um, and rejoice in, in him for that. And that brings us back to my main idea that gospel living is the pursuit of ongoing faith in Christ that leads to godliness and eternal life. This is what it means to pursue ongoing faith in Christ. Do you hourly reflect on your need for Christ? Is that just an ever-present reality in your mind that you need him? Because it should be. Do you help others to see their ever-present need for Jesus Christ? Can others see how you depend upon him in your own life? If not, Know that as a Christian, that's part of your role and responsibility in this world in fulfilling Christ's commission. As a follower of Christ, this is a purpose for which we should strive. It's not the only thing that you do, but it's, it's the most important to live out our worship by recognizing our dependence upon the Lord and help others to see their need for him as well.
It's so easy to make our jobs and our families and other aspects of our lives the most important things, but they're not. None of those things will last. The reality is, if you think about it, 10,000 years from now, you're still going to exist. Like, I was just reflecting on this the other day, and this really struck me. Like, I'm still going to exist. I'm still going to be around 10,000 years from now. Um, Our souls don't just cease to exist. We will still be around 10,000 years from now. Every single one of us will be. And at that time, you're not going to care how much money you made in this life. You're going to care about how you used the money that God entrusted you with. At that time, 10,000 years from now, you're not going to care how high up the corporate ladder you got or how much research you've gotten published in academic journals. You'll care how much you relied on Christ in each and every day of your vocation, whatever it is. At that time, 10,000 years from now, you're not going to care how accomplished or successful your children have been. You'll care only whether or not they saw Christ in you and then loved and obeyed him in light of that. And at that time, you're not going to care how self-sufficient or tough others thought you were. You're going to care about how humble and faithful you were in a demonstration and a reflection of Jesus Christ to the world around you. It's helpful to put that into perspective, that so many years from now, so many of the pursuits that we have in this life aren't going to matter to us. But the things that will will be our pursuit of Christ, our pursuit of holiness, our devotion to just trusting and relying on him each and every day and helping others to do the same. Helping people who have never heard of the name of Jesus Christ learn and to know about him. Like just as John was saying earlier, we have a campus here that has brought the nations to us. Um, We have the opportunity to minister to them um, and show people the savior who came to die for them. We want, we will want 10,000 years from now, we want to have been able to say we used our time well and wisely towards furthering and spreading Christ's gospel. Um, And that's not to say, again, that's not the only thing that we do. That involves other aspects of our lives. Like we're doing that in our families. We're doing that in our jobs. But it's just that job, your goals in your job are not your ultimate thing. Having your family look a certain way isn't the ultimate thing. So just keep that in perspective. With that mindset, let's learn from Paul and follow his pursuit to Christ. Let's pursue ongoing faith in him. And not just our own faith, but let's help the faith of others grow and flourish. Let's make it our ultimate aim to know Jesus and to make him known in the world also. And let's be clear on what that knowledge, that knowing Jesus and making him known by others, let's be clear on what that knowledge is. And that leads us to the next point that I see Paul making here. So again, let's turn back to to verse one. It says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. So I want us to focus in on that according with godliness statement. 
When Paul is talking about knowledge of the truth, it's not just a cerebral knowledge. It's not just a knowledge that just stays in our thoughts, in our minds. It's not just intellectual. There's an affection. There's an experience in the knowledge that changes the way one lives. Think about it in terms of honey. Um, Jonathan Edwards famously used this example also to illustrate a similar point. Someone who has never tasted honey can intellectually understand what it tastes like if someone has described it as sweet. So if you've tasted other things, you know what something is that's sweet, if you know what sweetness is. um, If someone describes honey sweetness to you, you can intellectually understand, at least generally speaking, what honey tastes like. You know that it's not gonna taste like a sour apple because they're sour. You know that it's not gonna taste spicy or bitter or anything like that you're going to be able to discount certain aspects of what it would taste like. So you can have a general idea of what, okay, it's sweet, I know what that means. So you can intellectually understand what honey tastes like. However, it's an entirely different experience and understanding when someone goes beyond just having the taste of it described to them and then actually tasting it for the first time. And that moment when the person really experiences the sweetness of the honey, um, that's, that's a whole different category of knowledge. Before it was just intellectual, but upon it touching that person's lips, it becomes an experiential knowledge. It's the truth made real for the person in a way that it wasn't before. And that's the kind of knowledge that Paul is talking about here in verse one. And that's why he says that it accords with godliness the kind of faith and knowledge that he's talking about here naturally leads to godliness. They're not separated. This isn't a knowledge that you can have, that you can have apart from godliness. If you really know, then your life will be changed by that knowledge. And if your life isn't changed by it, then you don't really know, not in the way that he's talking about. They cannot be separated. One will inevitably lead to the other. And that's where we get to the crux of the argument that Paul is going to make really throughout the rest of this letter. Um, the point that he wants to get across to Titus is, and therefore us is that true faith in Christ leads to godliness. Um, and if someone is trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, their life will begin to change and look different. And we'll see that throughout the letter. He'll present the gospel. He'll remind Titus what the gospel means, and then say how that should therefore lead to changed lives, changed behaviors, changed thoughts, changed desires and passions. If someone is trusting in Jesus Christ, they will confess and repent of sins. They will pursue righteousness and holiness. Old sin patterns will be killed and self-control will take its place. The faith-filled person of God will want to live differently and obediently in ways that they didn't before um, because of the goodness that he or she has tasted in Jesus Christ. It's not an obedience due to to necessity, but it's an, an, an obedience due to appreciation and love for the Savior. And like I said, we'll see that in the coming weeks as we go further through this letter. But even now, as we we need to be asking ourselves the hard questions. I want us to continue to do self-reflection as we're considering this passage. Am I walking in obedience to Christ? 
Do I even want to? If not, why? These are questions to ask ourselves. How is my sin maybe even more appealing than Christ? Do I really taste the gospel or do, is it just intellectual knowledge like I described before? Do you really taste and see the goodness of Jesus Christ or is it just an intellectual ascent? These are questions we have to consider. We have, to, we have been given the most incredible gift in the world through Jesus Christ. We can't just go on and live like everyone else who doesn't have that gift. If we do that, that undermines, that's just, that's inconsistent with recognizing that gift. If we can have it and live as though we don't. As we will see in later weeks, we were given grace so that we could have an appetite for godliness, not so that we would continue to love ungodly things. And that's because of the last point I want us to look at. And this is where he goes in verse two. So look with me again at the passage and I want us to look at verses, read verses one and two, but pay particular attention to verse two. Paul says again, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. Paul served God and pursued the faith of God's people because of our hope of eternal in eternal life. You see, this is why I brought up the fact that we will still exist 10,000 years from now. In fact, we will all exist 10 billion years from now. And I know like when we get into numbers that large, that kind of just exceeds our ability to comprehend and even imagine what that's like. But no, but don't lose sight of that fact that this earthly life that you are living right now is just a tiny tick mark on the infinitely large timeline that is your full life. It started at one point and it will go on for eternity. So this life that you are living right now on this earth presently is just a tiny tick mark on all that you will experience forever. Like that's, that's profound to consider. And it's also important to recognize that this is, like, th- this kind of blows my mind to think about, but it's also, not only is this just one tiny little tick mark, but it's the most important tick mark of them all, because this is the one that determines what the rest of your life will look like. And that makes Paul's statement here all the more incredible for us, all the more encouraging and joy-giving and life-giving. For those of you who have placed your faith in Christ, know that that the rest of your timeline is set. It has been sealed by the Holy Spirit to ensure it. And you have been guaranteed And you can be guaranteed that it will be the most satisfying experience you could ever have. It will be infinitely better than what your life looks like right now. It will be eternal life with God. Your reward will be him. He has given us this appetite for godliness. When he's changed our hearts so that we would have faith in Jesus Christ, he gives us an appetite for himself. And that is an appetite he will fulfill and satisfy each and every day of your life for eternity. 
You will spend eternity in his, in his presence, enjoying his glory and his beauty and his majesty and his love. And I, I don't know about you guys, but for me, it, it's so hard to even wrap my mind about, around this idea, other than just to know that it's far better than anything I could imagine. But I just think about, as, as an illustration that helps me think about just how great it will be, I just picture how, like, just plants how much they crave the sun. I was just watching an episode of Planet Earth the other day, and it was, it was really interesting. In, in it, um, I was watching the episode on rainforests, and um, in it, they talk about how when one tree, one large tree in the rainforest falls, it opens up a space in the canopy so that the sunlight, which usually doesn't reach the forest floor, can reach the forest floor all of a sudden. And it's unbelievable how much plant life just springs up immediately um, as soon as the life reaches that forest floor because they're, all of the plants want to just grow as quickly and rapidly as possible to just take in the nourishing sustenance of the sunlight. Um, and they just, it, the plants just crave it. They yearn for it. And it just helps them grow and to be fueled and satisfied and nourished. And I mean, these are traits that plants don't have, but the idea is there. And that will be true for us as we just bask in the glory and beauty of our God. It will just nourish and sustain us and satisfy us in ways that we can't even fathom in this life. And we will experience that every day, unendingly, that is part of the reason, like I said before, that he's giving you an appetite for him and he will satisfy that appetite for all of eternity. Your delight in him will never diminish. It'll never fade. It'll never grow mundane to you. And his love for you will be the same in return. It will never waver. It will never fade in any way. Each day you will be more and more thankful for your God and the love that he has for you. Your joy will be perpetual and ever-increasing. That is the hope that you get to have. That's the hope that Paul is writing about here, that hope in eternal life. That is the hope that you get. And like I said, it's hard to imagine, but it really is that good, and it really is that true. This word, when he says hope here, this isn't just wishful thinking. There's no, uncertain, un, there, there's no uncertainty about it. This isn't just like, okay, I hope that this will happen, but I'm not really sure. No, this is a confident expectation that if you have faith in Jesus Christ, this will be your future. This will be your reality. He has sealed you in his Holy Spirit to guarantee that this is true. And notice that Paul, just to further confirm that and affirm that in our minds, he goes back and says, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. He wants us to really believe that, that God does not lie, does not lie. And he promised this even before creation began. This was his intention. This was his plan all along for his people. And he will make it come about. And you guys, that sort of reassurance can help us weather any storm, any trial, any pain and suffering that this life brings. This is why Paul was able to say 
in all of the different things that he experienced. He experienced shipwrecks. He was stoned. He was beaten. He faced so much persecution and trials. He was bitten by snakes. He faced so much trials and hardships in his life. But because of this eternal perspective, this eternal focus on the life to come that he would have with Christ, because of that, he was able to reflect on all of those hardships and suffering that he had, and he was able to call them simply a momentary affliction that was preparing for him an eternal way of glory. We're able to view our trials and hardship in that way because that's truly what they are. It doesn't feel like that to us in the moment, but that is what they are, and we will recognize that one day. We will experience how light and how momentary what we experience now is, and we will thank the Lord for the gift of eternal life that he has given us. And even how these trials and hardships that we have faced will prepare us for that eternal life. No matter what this life brings you, through faith in Christ, you can be confident that one day it will seem like almost nothing. In your struggles now, lift your head up to see that hope. Our tendency is going to get lost in our pain and darkness. When, when things get hard, when things get busy and rough, we our default is head down, power through. And the problem with that is our focus zooms in just on our circumstances. And we begin to only see that trial, that hardship that we're trying to work through. But there is so much more to our life and our reality and what we can expect and hope for than that. And so in your hardships, lift your eyes out of that and hope in the eternal life that Paul is encouraging us and reminding us of in this passage. If you don't have faith in Christ, though, I pray that you would see this as the warning that it is. If you have not repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, none of this is your hope. This isn't your expectation. The grace and peace that Paul greets Titus with in verse 4 isn't yours to take a hold of. Your timeline as I was describing, will look far, far worse than the one that I was just describing. This will be the best your life ever looks. And that's by far, this is by far the best your life will ever look. What awaits us apart from Christ is an eternity of judgment and wrath from God. And that's wrath and judgment that is justly placed upon us because of our sins. Our sins, the wage of our sin is death. We deserve God's punishment in our sins. He is just to give us that. And you will face the judge and you will be found guilty apart from Jesus Christ. You cannot face that judgment on your own. You aren't righteous and you can't make yourself righteous. And I know that if you're honest with yourself and you really look at your own life, you will see that, that that's true. But that's why Christ came, so that he might take your punishment from you and that he would grant you eternal life. He offers to forgive and to redeem you. He offers to take your guilt and give 
his standing before God as righteous to you. You can be united with him and reconciled to God by repenting and believing. Humble yourself and submit your life to him. Repent and believe and take hold of this hope that Paul, that Paul reminds us of, that Paul teaches and exhorts us to, that Paul yearns for all of us to share in, that I yearn for you to experience as well. Everyone, let's all learn from Paul's ministry and words to Titus. Just kind of reflecting back on everything that I've just said. Let's learn from these verses. Let's desire humble. Let's take a posture of humility in our gospel living. And let, let's let that change the way that we think and feel and act. As I said in the beginning, let's pursue ongoing faith in Christ that leads to godliness and eternal life. Let's do that for ourselves and let's help others do the same. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, um, God, we thank you for this letter. We thank you even just for Paul's first sentence of it. Um, God, you give us so much truth to reflect on. You give us so much guidance and direction. You give us so much hope and joy to take hold of. Um, it's all because of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, let's not just read these words and simply make much of Paul. God, we simply want to imitate him as he imitated our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God, we want to make much of him with our lives. We want to be devoted to Christ. He has done so much for us. God, help us to live as those who constantly see our need for him and depend upon him and rejoice in the mercy we have been given and that that would transform the ways that we live our lives and that that would have an impact on those around us, Father. Lord, we worship you and we worship your son. We praise his name this morning. Amen.